We are going to be looking this afternoon at Job chapters 6 and 7, Job's answer to the first speech of Eliphaz. What I would like to do is read chapter 7. Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise, and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him any more. Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long? Will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am as a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Let's ask God's blessing on our study. Almighty God and Father, we give thanks for your word. We ask that you will enlighten us regarding it tonight so that we may understand what you have to say. Grant to us through the study of the suffering of Job an understanding of your sovereignty, of your mysterious workings and our sufferings, and sympathy also for those who suffer and are in anguish of spirit, like Job. We pray, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the a speech of Job here in chapters 6 and 7 falls naturally into two parts. In chapter 6, Job speaks to his friends, and in chapter 7, he speaks to God. It's very obvious at the end of chapter 7 
from verses 11 and following that he's speaking to God, but the same is true in the first 10 verses, and that's clear from verse 7, when he says, oh, remember that my life is a breath there. In verse 7, he uses a singular form of the verb. So he is not talking to his friends there, but he's talking to God. When he spoke in the, throughout chapter 6 to his friends, he used plural forms of the verbs. So there we know that he was speaking to his friends. Now, um, we're going to be noticing as we go through, especially chapter 6, that uh, there are some very difficult passages here. Uh, difficult, first of all, to translate so that the translations differ somewhat about the meaning of these, uh, the proper translation of the verses, but sometimes also difficult to interpret, even if they're not difficult to translate. But the, um, the, what we should understand is that the overall sense of the passage is very clear. There's really no mistaking that. It's just about some details as we're going along that some questions will arise. So we're going to divide chapter 6, Job's uh, answer to his friends, Job's words to his friends, into three parts, verses 1 to 7, where he explains the heaviness of his grief, verses 8 to 13, where he repeats his desire to die, and verses 14 to 30, where he complains of his friend's lack of kindness. Those, I think, are the three main sections of this chapter. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 7 briefly, where Job attempts to describe the uh, heaviness of his grief. He says in verse 2, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales, then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. So he says, my grief is heavier than the sand of the sea. And because of the heaviness of his grief, he ends that verse by saying, therefore, my words have been rash. Some of the translators make that wild. And if you look at the King James, they have a completely different translation based on the use of that word. It's not a very common word in the Old Testament. In another passage, the King James, I think, says, my words have been swallowed up. Um, but anyway, the, uh, probably the idea here is something like what the New King James has. My words have been rash. His words have been wild. And what Job means to say, I think, as uh, he's attempting to describe his grief, is that his grief has made him somewhat irrational. And uh, his speech is impetuous. He's just kind of pouring out thoughts as they come to him. He's, he's not attempting really to organize his thoughts or uh, very much. He's just uh, pouring everything out. And so he, he's basically saying to his friends here in these verses, don't expect uh, complete rationality uh, from a man who's weighed down with such grief. I'm overcome with such emotion that my words are bound to be somewhat wild and irrational and, and maybe difficult to understand. And later on we'll see that he says to his friends, and, and don't be so quick to judge my words either exactly because 
of that fact. He gives to us the main reason for this, his sorrow in verse 4. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. He uh, uses military language there, the language of a battle array and the language of poisoned arrows. And he says, uh, God has shot his poisoned arrows at me and my spirit is being consumed by the poison of these arrows. And God has arrayed his terrors, all of his terrors against me like an army of men ready to attack me. Uh, it, the, the essence of his grief then is that God is against him. It's not particularly that he has lost all his possessions, nor even that he has lost his children, but that he sees in those losses the enmity of God. God is attacking him. God is, for whatever reason, uh, against Job now, and God is seeking to destroy him. That's basically the idea. That's the reason that Job is so overwhelmed by grief. He has lost the favor of God. He has lost the fellowship of God. He has lost everything about God except God's anger. God is against him. But he also suggests in that uh, verse 2, which we've already mentioned, that part of his grief is, too, that his friends don't really understand his grief. Oh, that my grief were fully weighed. He, it, he implies, it seems to me at least, that his, his friends have not weighed his grief properly. They don't really understand the measure of his grief. And so his, his friends have failed him in that regard. They... Um, are there for his comfort. They want to comfort him, but they haven't taken the proper measure of his grief. And so it seems to him then also that they don't care, or they don't care enough. It's in verses 5 to 7 of this section of chapter 6 that we encounter the first major difficulty in this passage. Job here uses the metaphor of food throughout the three verses. And the question is how to interpret that metaphor. What is the food a metaphor for? What is he talking about? And there are three possibilities here, um, at least anyway, according to the commentators I read. First of all, it's possible that he, he doesn't really mean to, uh, to use a metaphor here. He's simply talking about food and his um, disinclination for food. He, he's basically saying, especially in verses 6 and 7, that my food is flavorless. Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Is, my food tastes like the white of an egg. Therefore, my soul refuses to touch my food. My food is loathsome to me. He's, he's just saying he's lost interest in eating, and therefore he has lost interest also in life. You find a, 
similar thing in Psalm 102, verse 4, where the psalmist says, My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. That's one possibility. And the question, though, that comes up there is, what does verse 5 mean, if that's the interpretation? Verses 6 and 7 become clear in that context, but what does verse 5 mean? Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass, or does the ox low over its fodder? It's possible, I suppose, that what he means is, if I really felt hungry, I would be like the wild donkey braying for food to eat or the ox lowing for uh, fodder to eat. But I'm like the donkey who has his grass before him and the ox who has his fodder before him. I have no hunger, no sense of hunger, and therefore I do not cry out for food. I, I myself kind of doubt that that is the proper interpretation of the passage A second possibility is that throughout these verses, he's talking about the circumstances of his life. And what he's saying here in verse 5, then, first of all, is that he's not crying out like this without reason. His friends have come to him, and his friends are arguing with him about the extravagance of his grief. And he says it's almost as if you're you're, you're saying to me, uh, you're, you're like a donkey that's braying over its grass, as if it doesn't have the grass before it, or the ox who's lowing over its fodder. That uh, I would not be doing this. I would not be crying out in this way if I, I, if I were not really, truly suffering in a way that you seem not to have grasped. And then he goes on in verses 6 and 7 to say, my life is flavorless to me. There's no taste in it anymore. My soul refuses to touch my life, my, the circumstances of my life. My, my life is like loathsome food to me. I would just as soon be quit of it. And so he would be saying here, I've received no satisfaction from Aliphaz's speech to me. And my life gives me no satisfaction at this point. And then goes on in verses 8 and following to say, basically, I wish I were dead. So that's another possibility, that he's talking about the circumstances of his life. A third possibility is that he's talking about the words of Aliphaz here. And he's saying in verse 5 then, Eliphaz's words haven't satisfied me. He's like the, the farmer who puts something before his donkey that the donkey can't eat. His words are, to a quote from Christopher Ash, a commentator on this passage, insipid, pious pap. And I don't want to hear them. Personally, I'm rather inclined to take the second view that he's, he's talking about the circumstances of his life and he doesn't want anything to do with his life, but I think there are good arguments for the other two interpretations 
as well. But it's clear then, whatever the case, that Job has found no happiness, no satisfaction. He's in dire straits. He's completely miserable. And so, in verses 8 to 13, he expresses again his wish to die. Now, this is somewhat different from the way he expressed that wish in chapter 3. You remember that there in chapter 3, he went through a whole series of of, uh, possibilities with regard to his death, and he says, any one of them would do for me. I wish I had not been conceived. I wish I had not been born. I wish I had been stillborn. I wish I had died immediately after birth. I wish I could die now. And that's basically what he says about it. But here he refers the whole matter to God. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me the thing that I long for. That it would please God to crush me. That he would loose his hand and cut me off. I wish God would just simply cut my life short immediately. Let him bring an end to it. And then in verse 10, I would still have comfort. Though in anguish I would exalt, he will not spare. I think he means there, I'd even be happy to suffer a a very painful, anguishing sort of death if only it would come quickly, if only God would not spare me any longer. And then in verse 10, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Again, we encounter there, I think, a bit of a difficulty. What does Job mean by that? Uh, There are different, somewhat different translations of this verse. I'll, I'll let you look them up yourself if you're interested in pursuing them. But I think the idea is essentially the same, no matter What translation you take here? I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Um, What he's saying is one of two things, I think. Either he's saying, I'm ready to die because I know that I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. And the kind of perhaps a reference to what his wife had advised curse God and die. And he says, I know that I've not done that yet, so I can still take comfort in death, for if God cuts me off immediately, I have not concealed his words. But the better possibility, I think, is that he's saying here, I would die, then if God would cut me off immediately, I would die before I concealed the words of the Holy One. I'm so weak, so driven to despair that I'm afraid I might get to that point. And so if God would cut me off now, he would keep me from falling into that great sin. And then in verses 11 to 13, Job says, I have no strength left. 
What strength do I have that I should hope? What is my end? What, what good can I hope for in the future that I should prolong my life? We would say, I'm at the end of my rope. There's no hope for me. There's no good to be expected anymore. I'm done. Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze, he says? I'm, I'm not that strong. I can't bear this anymore. And again, you come to some difficulties in verse 13. Is my help not within me and is success driven from me? The ESV says, have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Young's literal translation, is not my help with me and substance driven from me? But again, I think the overall idea is, this, is uh, pretty clear. Job is saying, I'm left to depend on, depend on myself. My friends aren't helping me. God is attacking me. He's not here for my help. I have only myself to depend on. It's not my help within me. And there's no hope that I can do anything for myself. Success or substance or wisdom or resource, whatever you want to make it, are driven from me. I have nothing left, he's saying, to resist the attacks of God upon me. In verses 14 to 30, then, he complains about his friend's lack of kindness. And he begins with a very general statement. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Job says, it's the role of friends to show kindness to those who are afflicted. And if the translation here is correct, and again, there's question about it, but if the translation here is correct, he's saying even if he had forsaken the fear of the Almighty, still he's under affliction and his friends should be there to show kindness to him, to help him in his trouble. But there are other possibilities there. English Standard Version, for example, says, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of God. And so what Job is doing in that case is he's laying the burden of guilt on, the, on his friends and he's saying, you haven't shown me any kindness and in not showing me any kindness you've forsaken the fear of God of the Almighty. But I like the translation of the NASB. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. In other words, Job is saying to his friends here, the role of friends is to help the afflicted to prevent him from forsaking the fear of the Almighty, to strengthen him and to uh, comfort him and to encourage him and to help him avoid falling into these sins. But he says, you haven't done it for me. 
My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook. He calls his friends his brothers there. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook. And then he extends that metaphor, in fact, all the way through verse 20. There's a a long description of this uh, deceitful brook. And what Job imagines here is a stream that's uh, uh, frozen in the winter. There's ice on it. The stream is dark because of the ice that's on it, but the water is there. The water is clear and refreshing. But as, as the weather warms up, the snow vanishes, the ice melts, the stream begins to flow. And when the hot weather comes, the stream simply dries up and disappears. When it is hot, they vanish from their plates. And this is, would have been a common experience to any traveler in the deserts of that area. The wadis would flow with water in the rainy season or in the winter season. But in the summer, the hot season and the dry season, they would dry up and there would be nothing left there. And then Job carries that one step further in verses 19 and 20, and he imagines then caravans of merchants traveling along the way and looking to find water at these streams. They know that these streams exist, and so... They're looking forward to the time when they can replenish their supply of water and they get there and there's nothing there. The stream has dried up. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confused. And what Job is saying to his friends is, you're like those streams that dry up. You come to me to comfort me. I expect good things from you. I expect refreshing water in the desert of my life. And you're like a dried up brook. You have nothing to offer me. I look to you for good and you have nothing for me. Nothing to refresh my soul. Nothing to help me at all. In fact, he goes on then in verse 21 to say to them, You are nothing. This is how he evaluates their presence and their words and their reactions to him. You are nothing. You do nothing for me. In fact, it's even worse than that. The last part of that verse, you see terror and are afraid. That is, they look at the circumstances of his life, they look at his sorrow, they look at his filth, the the dirt and the ashes that are on his head, the torn clothing, the disheveled appearance, the Um, misery of his countenance and they recoil from it they're afraid of it they don't want to be associated with it anymore they're afraid even that he has sinned and that somehow they're going to get involved in his sin and so they back off from him Job is saying something here very much like what David says in Psalm 38 verse 11 he says there My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. Job says to his friends, you're here, but you might just as well not be for all that you have done for me. In fact, you're making matters worse because you're recoiling from me in terror and fear of the circumstances in which 
you see me. You don't really even want to be associated with me. Now, does Job have good reason for saying that? Well, we, we don't really know, I think. Perhaps he had seen enough in their attitude and their body uh, language to know that that was the case. Body language can say an awful lot in these circumstances, and Job would be, of course, hypersensitive to such language. But again, Job is despairing. He's in great misery, and he says, you can't expect total rationality from me. Maybe his accusation is off the mark somewhat, but this is what it feels like to him. And in verses 22 to 30, he piles more accusations on his friends. First of all, he says to them, I never asked you for any help. Did I ever say bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Deliver me from the enemy's hand? Redeem me from the hand of oppressors? Did I ask you to come and do anything for me? No, you came voluntarily. Why then are you recoiling from me? And why, having come, can't you give me any help? Even, he says, in verses 24 and following, 24 and 25, if I've sinned, teach me. Show me where I've sinned. And if you show me, I'll hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words. If you would really accuse me of a specific sin, and if you would say to me, this is where you have sinned and how you have sinned and what you have done, if you would speak right words about this matter, that would be very forceful. But what does your arguing prove? Do you intend then to go on to the next couple of verses? Do you intend to rebuke my words? Well, even that's kind of a useless exercise because my words are the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind. Here you get that wildness of speech that he's talking about, the irrationality that overtakes those who are in grief. And we've seen this, haven't we? That people in grief don't always think clearly. They don't always express themselves in organized and rational things. They contradict themselves from one moment to the next. They talk rather wildly. And Job says, are you going to pick up on every word I say and are you going to rebuke me for it? Don't you understand that my speeches are the speeches of someone desperate and that some of them are just wind? But you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. And then he invites them again to find fault with him. Now therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede, my righteousness still stands. He says, you may think I've sinned, but you haven't shown me where I've sinned. You haven't made any specific charge of sin against me. You haven't convinced me of any injustice or unrighteousness. Why cannot you then concede my righteousness? I can, I can discern what's unsavory. 
I know unrighteousness. If I had sinned, I would know it, and I would, I would confess it to you. I would never lie to your face. But all you can do is think and accuse without being specific. He's found no help then in his friends. And I think we can perhaps have some sympathy for Job's friends in this. After all, only Eliphaz has spoken so far, and Eliphaz has not at least directly accused him of sin. And the friends did come in the hope of giving him some comfort, but after seeing him, they didn't know what to say. We can understand that too, I think. Nevertheless, I think Job's basic accusation is true. They did fail in compassion for him. And basically what it came down to in the thinking of all of them, and we'll see that as we work our way through the book, was Job must have sinned somehow for this kind of thing to happen. So Job is trying to defend himself, to forestall their accusations of sin, to shame them for their lack of compassion, and to arouse compassion in them for himself. He has no help, then, from his friends. But in chapter 7, what we find is that he also has no help from God. This chapter, I think, has two main parts to it. In verses 1 to 10 of the chapter, Job basically says, I'll never again see good. And in verses 11 to 21, he says to God, please leave me alone. He begins then in verses 1 and 2 by comparing his life to the life of a hired man and a servant. And he says, man's days on earth are hard. They're like the days of a hired man or like a servant who earnestly desires the shade. He has to work out in the sun and he's dry and thirsty and weary and sweaty and dirty and he would like to sit in the shade for a little while, but he's not allowed to. Or he's like a hired man who has worked hard for his wages and who now wants to be paid and has to wait. That's what man's days on earth are like. That's what my days on earth are like. It's just a time of hard service, painful, wearying service. In verses 3 to 6, he says, I've been allotted months of futility. My nights are wearisome and without rest. Verses 3 and 4. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. So I'm, I'm filthy with the worms and dust on me. And where the sores are on me, I'm breaking out afresh with blood and, and pus and and all kinds of filthiness. 
so my flesh is loathsome to me. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. So night and day, there's nothing for him. And when he considers his own body, it's diseased and dirty and loathsome. And so he says to God in verse 7, Oh, remember that my life is a breath. I can't take this very much longer. My life is very frail. And you have laid on me such burdens that I cannot bear them. I am done. My eye will never again see good. He's full then of grief again because of God. God has forgotten the frailty of his flesh and God has laid too heavy a burden on him. And so unperishing He says, the eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. I will disappear like a cloud or like one who goes down to the grave, never to return and never to see his house again or have his place known anymore among men. That's that's kind of an interesting thing there because it almost seems as if Job is saying there, that he wants to live yet. I'm going to die, he says, under the burden of your affliction. But he had been saying that he wanted to die. He had said it twice already. First in chapter 3 and then in chapter 6. Now it's possible that this is simply the inconsistency of a man who's desperate and, as we've said, not entirely rational and whose emotions are changing and is just pouring out thoughts as they come to him, that sort of thing. But I think it's more likely that when he said before, I wish I could die, he meant, I would like to die immediately. And what I see before me is a lingering death by the poisoned arrows of the Almighty. And that I can't stand. So that's, that's his sorrow then, the, the way he tries to express his sorrow. Verses 11 to 21 are the most striking part of Job's speech. Because the basic idea here in these verses, as I said, is that he says to God, please just leave me alone. He's full of bitterness and anguish. Therefore, verse 11, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. 
And he then basically complains against God. And he says, this is what you have done to me. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? And what he means here, I think, is when God created the sea, God, as it were, became the guard at the boundary of the sea so that the sea would not pass over. Remember, this is the kind of language that the scriptures use about uh, God's control of the seas. He, he sets a boundary on the seas and he controls them from overflowing those boundaries. And the sea serpent is a creature that God has made and God governs that creature according to his will. God guards that creature uh, so that that creature cannot do anything beyond what God has willed. And Job says, am I like them? Have you set a guard over me to hedge me in and hem me in to this misery, to this affliction, to this pain, to this loathsome life which I live? He thinks of God not as a guard to preserve his life, but as a guard at the door of a filthy dungeon to prevent the prisoner from escaping. You you keep me in, he says. You hedge me in and prevent me from getting away from this life. And when, verse 12, or verse 13 rather, when I seek a little relief, for a moment in sleep, when I can at least be for a few minutes unconscious of my trouble, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. That is, you send me nightmares so that I can't even sleep. And so my soul chooses strangling. He chooses death again, but this is a horrible death. My soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. Oh, let me alone. For my days are but a breath. I'm too frail to bear this burden. Just go away. terrible thing to say to God. Yet again, that's how he feels. Just go away. Now in verses 17 to 19, Job does a very interesting thing. The commentators point out rightly that the language here, verses 17 to 19, is very similar to the language you find in Psalm 8. Very striking thing. Where David says in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you visit him, and the son of man that you take notice of him? And he goes on to say, of God, you've exalted him, you've given him glory, you've given him dominion over all the works of your hands, and, 
And Job uses that same kind of language, whether he's borrowing from Psalm 8 or whether Psalm 8 is borrowed from Job's, Job's language, I don't know. And Maybe they were written completely independently of each other. But Job takes that language of Psalm 8 and he turns it on his head, on its head. And he says, what is man that you should exalt him? Notice it, it sounds kind of positive at first, the same kind of language that you find in Psalm 8. That you should set your heart on him, that sounds kind of positive too. That you should visit him every morning, you can even take that as rather positive. And test him every moment. You have not come, Job says, really to exalt him. His language sounds very satirical, in fact, in 17 in the first part of verse 18. You've not come to exalt him. You've not set your heart on him to do him good. You haven't visited him every morning to do anything but test him. How long? Will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Notice he wants to be left alone again. Just he says, take your eyes off from me for, for a minute. That's all I need. Just, just a brief minute so that I have time to swallow my saliva. Reminds me of the rich man in Jesus' parable looking up to heaven and asking Abraham to send Lazarus with a few drops of water to cool his tongue. Just, he says, the rich man said, just, just a moment of relief from this terrible torment. And I think Job is saying the same thing here. Just, that's all I want, just, just a moment of relief. But that word visit is very important here too. It's the same word you find in Psalm 8. God visits the Son of Man, and he visits him to do him good. But here he visits Job to do him harm, to test him. And the word can be used either way in the Old Testament. That's um, one of the reasons to translate the word as visit in every place where it occurs and is used in this way. It can mean visit to bless, visit to do good, or it can mean visit in judgment. The visitations of God are either visitations of blessing or visitations of judgment. And Job says, you visit me every morning simply to test me. In verse 20, have I sinned? What have I done to you, a watcher of men? If I have sinned, I, I don't know how. What have I done? He calls him the watcher of men here, and he certainly does not have in mind here that God watches over the righteous, as we read, for example, in Psalm 33. He has in mind here that God's eye is on him with anger and even with hatred to destroy him. What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? And then, verse 21, I think the most poignant of all the verses in this speech of Job. Why then do you not pardon my transgression 
and take away my iniquity. If I have sinned, is it necessary for you to afflict me in this way? Are you not the God of pardon? The God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin? Why can I not know that pardon then? Job knows the way of salvation. He knows it very well. He knows how to follow that way. He has followed that way. We saw him in chapter 1 offering sacrifices for the possible sins of his children. He knows the way of salvation. He knows God is a God who pardons iniquity. Why then do you not pardon mine if I have sinned? He sees then no salvation either in this God who has laid his hand on him. Almost he seems to say in the last few lines of this speech, I'm going to die and you're going to lose the pleasure of tormenting me. For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently but I will no longer be. This is Job then crying out in the same way that the psalmist cries out. It's Asaph, I think, in Psalm 77. When he says this, Will the Lord cast off forever, and will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? That's Job here in his heavy affliction. So what do we see? Well, we see that Job expects no help from his friends. That he expects no help from God. In fact, God's presence is troubling to him. And that he is at the end of his own resources. There's nothing left for him. But especially, I think we should consider more broadly those last words of Job in verses 11 to 21 of chapter uh, 7. It's clear that he has not rejected the existence of God. Some men do that, don't they? They say, if there were a God, men would not suffer like they do. I would not suffer as I am. He has not rejected the existence of God. He has not rejected the sovereignty of God in his suffering. He has not said, this is not the hand of God, this is This is enemies, or this is Satan, or this is accident, or this is fate, or or anything of that sort. This is God, he says, who is doing this to me. And he's deeply, deeply troubled by it, because he has no explanation for it. He wants answers, and he wants restoration to his God but he does not know how to find it. Even in the way of salvation, he cannot find God. 
God will not pardon his iniquity. There is no help for him there. And so what he does is he just simply pours it all out to God. And I think that's important too. He's absolutely sincere. He hides nothing of what he's thinking and feeling. He's not afraid to say to God, I don't understand you. You tax me beyond my strength and you give me no reason for it. You won't even pardon my transgressions if I have sinned. He's not trying to evade the truth about himself. He just simply cannot find any sin to confess. But in his misery, he does exactly the right thing. He takes it to God. And he tells God fully and sincerely the thoughts and feelings of his heart. And in that, people of God, is his hope. The way may still be long and dark and difficult for him. He has found the right way to approach the problem. Take it to God. He is the one who has wounded me. Let him also then be the one who heals. Is there sin in Job's railings, if you want to put it that way, against God? Probably. Probably. And if we are as sincere and honest with God as Job is, there will probably be sin in our outpourings as well. But God wants to know what is in our hearts. He wants us to explain ourselves to him. And he remembers. He does. Even though it may not seem so. He remembers that we are dust. May God bless you with his word.